I'm going to try not to uh, overcomplicate things and confuse myself in these three Sunday sermons. I'm going to keep it simple. We're going to talk about the past and the present and the future. And so this morning, let's take a look at what has already happened. Let's take a look at the past and let's turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning uh, in verse 3. Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, made so by the very will of God, brings this word to us at God's command. To all the saints, to all who are faithful in Christ Jesus, he comes proclaiming this message, this truth, this reality that brings grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear now the word of God found in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened this morning so that we may truly know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, typically... To inherit something means to receive something, something significant from someone we are related to, Uh, something unique that belongs to them, that is characteristic of them, and that's given to us individually, uniquely, personally. Usually it's something pretty amazing, pretty cool, sometimes not so amazing. Sometimes we speak of inheriting a particular trait from our parents. 
Sometimes our children say, I get that from you. Uh, That usually refers to some uh, physical trait or some emotional trait or personality trait that we are uh, trying to uh, speak to our children about, about maybe that's not a good idea to to reflect that, to uh, exemplify that. And they say, I get that from you. Uh, But normally when we speak of not just to inherit something, but an inheritance... We're referring to something that is given to us specifically by name, by someone who loves us, following that person's death as part of a last will and testament. That's normally what we think of when we think of an inheritance. It's a final legal declaration by that person that what belonged to him or her now belongs to us. It's ours. And it's meant to be a blessing. Well, here in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is passionately declaring to us the reality of the greatest inheritance you could ever imagine. He begins a prayer of praise in verse 3. Look at it with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Now, that little phrase, in Christ, is the heart of the gospel. It's what makes it real. It's what guarantees us life for all eternity. Being in Christ. That little phrase is so important that it's used over 160 times in the New Testament. Over and over again in this passage, it talks about being in Christ, in Him. We have all of this inheritance. Without being in Him, we have nothing. So he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he goes on. And on and on, all the way to verse 14, without stopping, without taking a breath. In the Greek, it's over 200 words that he uses, but it's just one really long sentence. It's as if once he begins to talk about this unimaginable inheritance, he just can't stop. He puts conjunction after conjunction as he's writing this out. Grammar teachers would hate that. But he goes on and on without taking a breath. It's probably the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. And he proclaims here the mystery of God's will to all who believe without stopping. You can't take just part of it and leave off the rest. And he goes on after that to pray that God would help us to grasp the reality of the hope, the reality of the riches, the reality of the power of the inheritance that is ours in Christ. It's one that will never spoil or fade, one that nothing can destroy and that nothing in all creation can take away from us. It's a little like the opening sentences 
of God's last will and testament. His last word of his will to us. What he wills for us. His final declaration of the riches that he is giving to us in Christ. And he's given it all to us. It's as if you get called into a lawyer's office and says, someone has made you a beneficiary in their will. And you walk in and they just describe the most glorious inheritance you could ever imagine. You're like, why would he give it to me? Why me? It's meant by God to change our lives forever. It changes the choices we make, the things that we do, the way we relate to one another, and it gives a new purpose to our lives. We are literally transformed by the reality of this inheritance in Christ. B.B. Warfield, the great American theologian of over 100 years ago, was so moved by this sentence in Ephesians 1 that he said, These words should never be read in church. They should always be sung. And Paul's heart is soaring. It's singing here. And in these verses, he comes to the very heart of the matter in his letter to the believers in Ephesus, to the Ephesians. If we ask ourselves the question, what is Ephesians really about? The answer, Paul says here in these first 14 uh, verses, is that the answer is that it's a mystery. That's what this is all about. It's a mystery. And he begins to, to turn the pages for us and unfold it for us. If you notice that he said in verse 9, this is making known to us the mystery of his will. And he uses that phrase over and over again in chapter 3. It's all about the mysterious, ultimate purpose of God that for ages had been hidden and that now in Jesus Christ has been revealed to us. God has, in effect, unveiled his heart to us in revealing Jesus Christ to us. And these words before us are written so that we might understand that mystery, that it might become an open secret in our lives, a secret revealed in the life of the church. And the heart of the mystery, he says here in chapter 1, is that it's all God's plan. Verse 10 tells us, He set it forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. To unite all things. To sum up all things in Him. Some of you may remember back in the day when they used to teach children addition in school uh, that they used to add from the bottom up. Not from the top down when they were doing addition. They would start at the bottom and add it all up. And the sum of it all would be right there at the top. And that's kind of what God's doing here. In a sense, the apostle is telling us that God's plan in Jesus Christ is this. He looked upon a world where things 
didn't add up. It's not that he reacted to the world. He knew this before he ever created the foundation of the world and he planned it all out. But he looks upon it uh, and things don't add up. And in Colossians 1, he tells us it's God's purpose to reconcile all things in Christ. That's his purpose. Not that every single individual is going to be reconciled to God, but that all things will be made right. They will all add it up at the end. That God looks upon a world that has been fragmented and alienated, where all things will finally be brought into a glorious unity. Heaven and earth will be reconciled, so there is no longer Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, Scythian nor barbarian, but Christ is all because he is in all, the text tells us. This is how God is working out the glorious mystery of his will. The deepest secrets of his heart toward his creation, that he's so going to exalt Jesus Christ and save his people that this marvelous mystery will come to very real, actual fulfillment, that things in heaven and earth will be wonderfully united. And it will all add up. Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14 is really all about how God does what is essential to fulfilling that glorious purpose. What does God need to do to uh, bring this world and my life and all of its fragmentation and all of its alienation and chaos under the headship and saving grace of Jesus Christ? In verses 4 through 10, he says, In order for that to become a reality, there are some blessings God needs to shower upon us. There are blessings of inheritance that he needs to bestow to us. And he begins to unveil the mystery to us in Jesus Christ. And the first blessing he mentions here uh, is found in verse 4, where it says, Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Our election in Christ is the very first blessing of the inheritance. That before God even created the world, the Father and Son made this covenant of redemption, knowing full well that God uh, would create a people for Himself, and yet they would turn from Him, look to themselves as to be God, and... And break fellowship with Him. Break communion with Him. And that separation caused by their sin is what God spends the rest of the past making right. All of the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of what is yet to come when the Messiah comes. When the Son of God dwells among us. And we see His glory the glory of the one and only. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's a statement of God's amazing, irresistible, gracious sovereignty. It, it should give you hope that your salvation is not on shaky ground. 
that there really is nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing in heaven above or on earth below. No principalities. Nothing can separate you from it. Because it's all been a part of God's amazing, irresistible, gracious, sovereign plan from the very beginning. The Apostle Paul understands that if God's glorious purpose is going to be achieved in this world for the likes of you and me, then God in His sovereign mercy must be the one that initiates it. He emphasizes that what God does is done in the most marvelous mercy and grace. And we know that because God chose us, a people that he will go on to describe as having been dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living according to the passions of our flesh, who are by nature children of wrath. For that is what we were. And it begins to dawn on each of us that apart from Christ, apart from Him, from being in Him, that is the kind of person I am. There isn't anything in me that could possibly take the initiative to be reconciled to God, to enter into the glorious kingdom of His Son. That initiative must inevitably rest in the gracious, merciful purposes of God. That as God chooses us in Christ, unites us to Christ by faith, that we might be holy and blameless before Him in Christ. Not because we are already holy and blameless and beautiful and wise, but in order to make us so to the praise of His glory. And so the mystery of our inheritance in Christ must leave us a bit dumbfounded, certainly humbled, and Lord willing, grateful. We can't understand the infinite mind of God in all His ways, but we can respond to it like the thief on a cross who said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And He And he told that thief on the cross, this very day you will be with me in paradise. Or like the Apostle Paul who describes himself as the least of all the saints, the worst of all the sinners. And yet he's praising God saying, blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where the mystery begins. And the gracious mercy of God And as He sets His love upon us, He pours out His blessings. But with the blessing of God, there is always both delight and obligation. Scripture tells us that the Lord our God rejoices over you as His beloved. He spreads His banner of love over you. At your worst moments, He's still rejoicing in you. Yes, with every blessing of God, there's delight. But there's also obligation. God obligates Himself to us. 
From before the foundation of the world, he obligated himself to us. As John 3.16 tells us that, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But with every blessing of God, there is delight and obligation for us too. You see, we can respond to God's grace and mercy in one of two ways. We can respond with, with a humble faith and a repentant heart where we keep turning away from our sin and fleeing back to God. Or in our sin, we can harden our hearts and allow fear and bitterness to drive us even further away from God. Declare all the beauty and grandeur and, and glory of the mercy of God, and yet hearts can still turn away, unbelieving and bitter. But God doesn't stop with planning it all out from before the foundation of the earth. He also blesses us uh, here in chap uh, chapter 1, verse 5, with adoption through Christ. God's initiative towards us leads us to a purpose. And that destiny that God has for us in Christ is that we would be adopted as His own children. Naturally, having been uh, children of wrath, God justly and legally adopts us as His very own. We become children of God, not just with the new birth, but also by God bringing us into the family through Jesus Christ. Just as it tells us in John chapter 1, in verse 12, he says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man but born of God. That's our adoption in Christ. Only through Jesus Christ do we ever begin to say and mean our Father who art in heaven. As we begin to trust our Heavenly Father, all hypocrisy and anxiety begin to fade away. So that when difficulties do come upon us, we begin to say, not just, Oh God, help me! Oh faceless, nameless, unknowable God out in the universe somewhere, save me, help me! No. When difficulties come upon us, we begin to say, Father, help me. I'm your child and I'm sinking. Help me, Father. It's what the Apostle says in Romans 8, in Romans chapter 8, that we cry out in a spirit of sonship in our weakest and lowest moments. When there's a turning to our Father and the deep in our hearts we cry out, Abba, Father. In that needy longing for the reality of the Father's loving care and His protection and provision, that's where we often find the most vivid evidence that proves we are His. Our hearts actually turn to Him as our Father. And the riches of His blessings 
are not just his setting his love upon us, not just bringing us back into his family as sons and daughters, but it's also our redemption by Christ. You see, we must be bought back from out of our slavery to sin. And in verse 7, it speaks to us that forgiveness of our sins is lavished on us through Christ. But as we read elsewhere in the New Testament, apart from the shedding of blood, there can be no redemption. In Him, we have redemption. It's free to us, but it's costly to Him. The grace that's lavished on us comes only through His blood that is shed on Calvary. In order to begin to grasp the reality of our redemption, we have to grasp something of the reality of what it cost God. It's described very vividly for us in chapters 52 and 53 of the, the prophecy of Isaiah in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before the time of Jesus where the description of the suffering servant is laid out and uh, the servant of God speaking of the son that would be given, that was promised. There would come a time when it says he was marred beyond all human resemblance. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. Yet by his stripes... We are healed. And from our perspective, that just doesn't add up. How are we healed? Why in the world would he go through that for us? And yet, still, God saves sinners just as he purposed to do. Through Christ, he promised and he accomplished the reality of bringing us out of our lives of chaos and alienation into the glorious life He created for us in the very first place. And here, just in these uh, first 14 verses of chapter 1 in Ephesians, we get just a glimpse of that ultimate reality that's in store for us. And so He has begun to make known to us the mystery of His will for us in Christ. You can enjoy a blessing without understanding it but you'll enjoy it all the more when you see the marvel of what's really behind it. And we can enjoy it all the more when we see the marvel of what is going on here in the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. It's as if the Father wants to share these things with us now to draw out of us a kind of total astonishment and wonder of the very personal, intentional, and gracious love that He has lavished on us already in our inheritance in Christ. That's the response we hear in verses 13 and 14. Where we, having heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who guarantees our inheritance until we acquire the full possession of it, all to the praise of His glory. 
we look longingly as believers for the final consummation of all the working out of God's purposes for us in the new heavens and the new earth. But in a very real sense today, already in the past, it's been made real. And we can be reminded of it today and live in light of it today. That heaven has come down already into our hearts. And glory fills our souls. To give us all of this inheritance. It takes no less than God Himself. And it takes all that God is. And it's all for the praise of His glory. When we begin to grasp more of the reality of our inheritance in Christ, we can only respond like all the saints who have gone before us, who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and be caught up with wonder and love and praise, just as our Heavenly Father intended. People of God, may our lives reflect the reality, the reality of our inheritance in Christ. And remember, He calls upon us to be in Christ once this very day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the redeeming grace that you have spread out before us in all its beauty and grandeur this morning. For reminding us that in Christ, we are completely and utterly secure. Chosen in the love of the Father in all eternity. Purchased by the blood of the Son in real time, in real history. And drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit in our own experience, in our own hearts. And kept by Him for a glory that will yet come. This is our inheritance. And our hearts rejoice anew with the Apostle Paul. With breathless wonder saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To whom be all glory and praise now and forevermore. Amen.